0: Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long term investor.
1: Justin Carbonell and Jack Forhand are principals at Lydia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Lydia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Lydia Capital.
0: Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode, Jack and I sit down with Katie Stockton of Fairlead Strategies to talk about her personal approach to investing and how she thinks about her investments and what is important. We talk to her about her tactical ETF strategy, which she invests in, her views on managing risk, why she uses a financial advisor for parts of her investing and planning, and how she thinks about kids and money and much more. Toward the end, we get Katie's views on the current market trend and where she's seeing opportunities. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Barely Strategies' Katie Stockton. Katie, welcome back and thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much, Justin. Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year to you. Uh, most people that I think uh, have seen you either maybe on our podcast or certainly CNBC and other media outlets sort of know of you as you know being out there talking about the markets, talking about technicals, talking about different asset classes, and how you know investors should be looking to position their portfolios tactically and I think um, you know for the long run as well. But and we're going to get into uh, some of that with you because while we have you, we're going to take advantage of that. But what we 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 thought we would do. Um, is sort of talk to you about your personal approach to investing and some of your views on the things that we're gonna talk about. We do this show us your portfolio episode where we talk to professionals like yourself that kind of give our audience insights, how they think about their own portfolios, how they think about compounding and growing wealth. And there's always really interesting little nuggets that come out of these because people like you have been in the markets for a while. And it's always interesting to see how your expertise translates into sort of how you go about managing your own money. So this is gonna be really cool. We really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you so much.
2: Of course, no, I'm happy to go down that path with you guys. It's um, a little different for me, but I think it definitely is relevant. And um, as you know, I'm a technical analyst, so I I am sort of narrow in my expertise and it's taken me probably the, the whole 25 years of my career, 25 plus years at this point, to kind of figure it out myself, so
0: when you think about your long term goals and what you're trying to accomplish with your portfolio and your investments, how would you sort of capture the essence of that
2: i I think the key is long term and and this is something we actually sort of learned more recently i i I joke that I wish I'd been more long term in my focus a long time ago, <laughs> so um uh, you know, it's easy to become short term as a technical analyst because you're really close to the markets, right? So you you do, by the nature of our sort of day job, get caught up in the day to day swings. So it, it's really dynamic. And honestly, it, it's, it's really hard as a technician and someone who's so close to the markets to watch anything uh, go against me in terms of my portfolio. So because I am so close to the markets. But I also have learned that the long-term focus is really key in investing. It is how you build wealth and that we have to be okay with some drawdowns. And we have to really take the long view in taking positions and not get too caught up in the short term because the short term can be just noise. Um, So we've learned that the noise doesn't tend to help us a whole lot. And and I think that's probably, you know, something that's common out there that we can easily get caught up in the short-term swings and repositioning too frequently and and therein also incurring, you know, more transaction costs, more tax implications, et cetera. Whereas if you had just kind of held throughout a certain, um, you know, period, maybe a consolidation phase or something like that, you would have been well served by doing that. So so we have learned as we've gone along uh, the way that long-term investing is really key.
0: I'm, I'm curious, how often or much do you think about your retirement? I mean, you're, you're building a business at Fairlead with your team, and you, you you know you have the research, you have the asset management. But do you take a step back sometimes and think about this is what I want my retirement to look like, or are you so is that so far off in the distance that you're not really thinking of that? <laughs> no, it's, I
2: think. it's definitely <laughs> far off in the distance. Mm-hmm. I, I do kind of feel like I'm one of those people that will never stop working. I. I see people like, um, you know, Louise Yamada, who's a, a very well-known technical analyst or Art Cashin, who's who's going to do it to the day he dies. And and I really respect them and appreciate their passion for the markets. And um, I can't say I can match them in any way, but but I do have a passion for markets. So I, I expect to be doing this for a long term. You know, maybe it morphs from doing it, you know, in this capacity, fairly to something that's more personal. Uh, So I have no eyes on on, uh, the prize of retirement at this point. Um, And yet, you know, every time you look at your accounts, you know, you you do think about it. And, um, you know, you think about it as it pertains to your lifestyle. And it it honestly stresses me out quite a bit. I think I'm probably not alone in that to think that, um, you know, there's just not enough, right? So it's definitely on my mind. I can't say I think about it, you know. Every day, but certainly, you know, once a month, I'm really checking in on things and and making sure that I'm on the right track.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to to your point about not retiring. I mean, that's something we commonly hear on these, and you know, all of us, I think, to to a large extent, like derive a huge per- part of our purpose from like what we do. And, and that's a big thing you see with people that retire is when they kind of flip that switch, and it's just all it's on one day and it's off the next day. Like that gets lost. So I, I think that's important, you know, to keep attached to something you you like as much as you like markets you know, as you move forward, even if it's not something you're doing full time.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I I do enjoy it. I also enjoy like the, you know, the human element of it, right? Just working with people and and having something uh, to wake up for. So and you do see that, Jack, I think it. where, um, you know, we've all had friends and colleagues retire and uh, they often go into sort of a a mode where they they want to do something they want to do something that's less um you know onerous i guess in in many ways but they really want to have like a new project i just talked to somebody over coffee last week who is in that position sort of retiring from the the big time you know position uh, but but wanting to take their experience and do something a little bit different with it so I understand that because, yeah, what I do definitely defines me. It's, um, it's you know, sort of a constant because I have my own company, too. It's it's constantly on my mind. Um, so uh, and I enjoy it.
1: Yeah, there's only so much, you know, a lot of people think they're going to retire. Or I'm going to play golf, you know, five days a week. And eventually that, you know, that that gets old pretty quick, I think. You know, yeah, as much and, as and people and think they golf, can do it.
2: <laughs> the golf courses don't want me. So it's
1: <laughs> an, yeah, not I'm, an option. A pretty, I'm a pretty horrific golfer uh, myself. So when you think about your portfolio and you think at a high level about like the asset classes you're looking at, you know, your stocks, your bonds, your alternatives, like how do you think about that? How do you think about like putting that together, like the cl- asset classes you invest in and then how you put that together into a portfolio for yourself?
2: Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole like asset allocation conversation, um, you know, for me really became more real when I developed the strategy behind my ETF because that became a holistic portfolio in and of itself of different asset classes. And I'll, I'll be honest, before that, I really was more equity focused. I just would, would buy stocks or buy um, equity ETFs. I really never um, got too deep into fixed income. Uh, but now, you know, once I'm, I'm sort of at the stage where I am thinking, um, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road and I need to ultimately get a bit more conservative, right? Um, I am thinking more about asset allocation, um the way I see it is that um it you know it may look something like sixty forty you know in in a strategy that that we would develop like like the ETf, but it needs to be dynamic, right So the key is that it shouldn't be a static percentage of say fixed income versus equities. By the way, there's other asset classes too, right so so we have commodities and precious metals within that. So I, I think all of that, um, you know, really needs to be dynamic. So I can't say that there's an answer right now that this is, you know, what it is and what it will be. Um, but I, I do have more attention to it now in my own portfolio. I'm really via my own ETF at this time. Um, but I think it's important as a way to diversify and obviously manage risk that is associated with an equity market that has much more volatility. Uh, you know, now than it has in in certain environments in the past. So we have to have ways to navigate those environments.
1: Do you use technical analysis like on the majority of your portfolio? It's interesting when we talk to people who have a specific skill in the market, sometimes they say, you know what, I I completely apply that to 100% of my personal portfolio. Sometimes they also say, you know, that's what I do during the day. I don't want to like, you know, focus on my personal portfolio. I kind of put it away in the Vanguard stuff and I just leave it there. Like, how do you think about that? A
2: little bit of both, I would say. So I have, um, you know, compliance that I have to follow. I have to be compliant as an SEC registered firm and a FINRA registered investment advisor. And with that, um, honestly, we we have generally shied away from individual stock positions. I still do buy stocks. You know, I, I bought NVIDIA on its breakout for one. Um, so I do, you know, look for a high conviction types of setups in the charts and let that be my guide. I do have to trust in a way the fundamentals are strong there. And um, so I'm trusting the markets sort of rewarding certain stocks with a long term uptrend, essentially. So I'm, I'm much more inclined to buy a stock that's in a long term uptrend that has some kind of positive technical catalyst um, as opposed to something that's a turnaround but i also think you know with with the turnarounds you tend to get a, a higher beta type of position right so if you believe in um sort of the industry at least if not also the company itself it, it's certainly worth um, having smaller exposure that is more in that kind of realm depending on the environment but i'm really very top down in how i think about things um you know when the s&p 500 is working uh well then most stocks are working too right so okay. so and then vice versa. I, I, this is where the fundamentals are challenged because there will be environments for for weeks, months at a time when um, you know the the charts and the trends just don't reflect honestly the company's fundamentals. So I could never invest in anything without seeing the chart. And and truly at this point, because I'm sort of an old dog, I I need not only the chart. Like I can't just look at a price chart. I need all my indicators too. <laughs> so they're kind of like. You know, a, a lot of tools that we're using, momentum-based indicators over butter for sold measures. And um, so so I'm a little bit um, sort of, I guess, stuck in this discipline at this point. But it has helped me over time identify opportunities. It is my primary input when I'm investing. But I am also trusting that the uh, markets are rewarding certain companies And therein, I kind of try to stick to those realms when I'm investing on the individual stock level. Um, I do believe that you can, you know, invest in sectors and major indices, whether it's via ETFs or otherwise, uh, really just with technicals on your side, because you're really making a bet on the momentum and relative strength. Right. Um, Whereas the individual stocks, I think you really want to have the earnings trends and and other factors and a strong management team and, and governance. Um, on the side of that position. So, so there's a little bit more to it there and that's not lost on me. So what I do, I I trust my financial advisor to manage a portfolio for me, but then I also have, um, you know, money that I work on myself. So, uh, and the managed portfolio will be mostly individual stocks, right? So I'm trusting the advisor to have, um, you know, strong research behind um, his process. And then Um, I also don't then run into the compliance issues of going in and out of these individual securities that I may or may not at at any given time feature in my own research, right, which is where the issues um, become sort of, you know, sort of a regulatory problem. If I, I, let's say, if I owned a stock and then I said um, in my research that it looks poised to correct, well, that could be obviously confused and uh, misinterpreted by the end user and by the regulator. So so I trust the advisor to do the individual stock portfolio primarily. And then I'll have my own uh, positions primarily in RETF just because that's a, a whole portfolio. And then I'll supplement that with some smaller positions.
1: Yeah, the, the financial advisor point is a really important one because we see that a lot. Like People think that those of us that are in the business like won't benefit from a financial advisor, but a lot of us do. I mean, just having somebody outside of yourself who can take a look at what you're doing like you can benefit from that, even even if you're really skilled and you're in markets day to day, like th- there's benefits to having that type of thing going on.
2: Yeah, I, I, I never thought about doing it all myself. Um, I do have a lot of clients, um, research clients who do try to do it themselves. And, and I, I can see their frustration. Sometimes it's it starts with the frustration with their existing advisor and their underperformance. Then they try to do it themselves. But I find that they do often ultimately go back to an advisory relationship because not only is it it's just high maintenance, right? Um, there is a lot of administrative stuff that can come with it, too, that an advisor is going to facilitate. So, um, you know, I think for the the most success, it makes sense to have an advisor and to do so with a little bit less of a headache on some of the administrative things that come up with it. Um, you know, we, we all, I think, benefit from not just, you know, a portfolio management, right, which is more what I'd be focused on, but also like financial uh, planning. So so an overall view of your whole um, sort of net worth and, um, you know, the retirement prospects with that in mind.
1: You mentioned your ETF and the allocation strategy behind it. Can you just talk a little bit about, because I, I think that plays into how you're doing things with your personal portfolio. Can you just talk a little bit about the strategy behind that?
2: Yeah, so and and this is by no means a, a pitch for my ETF, but it's it's kind of what I believe in, right? That that's why we launched it. So it's called the Fairlead Tactical Sector ETF. So what we're doing with that ETF, it's a it's an ETF of ETFs. So and I really believe in ETFs as a good product, which is why my product is in that wrapper, and um, because of the the sort of um, you know the advantages in terms of of cost for one versus you know sort of private funds. Uh, but also for tax implications that you tend to get with mutual funds can be a little bit more, um, sort of, uh, I guess, it, more of a nuisance, right, on a year-over-year basis. So I, I like the tax implications from ETFs, and I, I like them as a wrapper that allows for a more affordable way to invest in certain strategies. So, so what we've done is found some very low-priced ETFs, meaning very low expense ratios. Uh, So we take 14 ETFs, of which 11 are sector funds. If you think about like any given year, the sector dispersion is so massive. You know, you can have, uh, you know, uh, 60% spread in in relative performance, which is, I mean, or even more than that, from the winner, the biggest winning sector and the biggest losing sector year over year. So we feel like that's something that investors should try to take advantage of, right? By kind of um, having positions that are concentrated in those winning sectors and vice versa. So like, you know, and avoiding the sectors that are underperforming or that just don't have the momentum behind them. So that is our primary goal is to leverage the sector rotation using our long-term technical indicators. We're just rebalancing monthly and falling with sort of my belief uh, that long-term investing is the way to go. And with that, we're we're just trying to ride long-term trends and make sure that there's Still the supportive momentum, relative strength, and there's no big overbought sell signals, say. Now, we'll, of course, get into environments where risk management is more important. So what we found is this is where asset allocation comes in. Of course, you have ways to, um, you can use like a stop loss discipline, um, but you can almost like lean on the indicators to do that for you. So either you can do that through, let's say you owned, a, um, you know, Nvidia, and you said I I just don't want to see it go back below its fifty-day moving average. Great, that that is a way to manage risk, but it is actually pretty high maintenance too to monitor that yourself in a portfolio. So rather, we like a systematic approach where it's it's kind of doing it for us and and doing it via. You know, sort of a, a look at momentum gauges. So when is momentum shifting enough to suggest that this is more than just like a pullback, right? This is an actual reversal that we want to get out of the way of. So that's what we're trying to measure and and avoid those big drawdowns. So that's really key is is to avoid the big drawdowns. And over history, that's how you can beat the S and P five hundred. It's not necessarily via stock picking. I mean, there are good stock pickers out there, of course, but. Uh, I really feel like it's it's by avoiding those 2008 types of periods. That's where you get that long term out performance. And if you can do that with a sort of more uh, safety in your positions, meaning like less um, volatility, you know, lower standard deviation, lower beta, uh, to give you some peace of mind. That that's our goal through the asset allocation. And what we found in our back testing of the strategy is that it wasn't like a shift fully into fixed income, but rather a combination of fixed income and precious metals that that got us to a place where we felt like we liked the outcome. And so we have short-term treasuries as an option, long-term treasuries, and gold that we're able to invest in through low-priced ETFs. So th- those become our kind of defaults, um, divided about a third, a third, a third. Um, depending on, on a couple of factors. Um, so, so we default to those asset classes when we don't have enough sectors kind of filling our, our requirements. Um, so that's, that's the dynamic nature, right? So it'll, we'll shift, I call it more risk on or risk off based on the long-term uh, trends behind those sectors.
0: On the momentum, um, I guess, factors, could you just shake out, so you have, let's say you have, you know, a sector exhibiting strong relative strength and momentum, And then how do you identify? I know it can be tricky because not every decline is going to be further declines. It could, you know, they could turn on you and go the other way. But what type of momentum indicators are are you looking at to get at whether that momentum is really, it's really losing momentum and not just like a temporary pause?
2: Yeah. And I mean, you know, the model behind tech, that's the ticker for the ETF tack is proprietary, but it's it anybody knows our research, I I know we've discussed it in the past, it looks very much like the tools that we're using on a day-to-day basis. We have moving averages, of course, that are great, the sort of gauges of prevailing trends over different timeframes. We have the MACD indicator, which is a very common technical tool to discern momentum and sort of trend indications. We have something we call the cloud model, which is also known as Ichimoku. It's a Japanese model that helps us stay on the right side of the trend. So it's really kind of a combination of indicators that will give us that momentum takeaway. And then we have uh, another sort of combination that will give us a sense of how overbought or oversold something is. And and does that mean it's providing opportunity or that risk might be heightened? Um, And then we can combine that to understand what the relative performance is, because we are trying to find those leading spots within the market, right? And that, you know, something that we check for individual stock positions, we look for trends of long-term outperformance. Um, and that's simply just take a ratio, right? And, and identify the trend versus whatever your benchmark is, you know, the S&P 500 index being the most common one, I'd say.
1: How do you think about technical analysis on bonds? I mean, we've we, I've seen it do, done different ways. I mean, some people actually do like pure technical analysis on bonds, looking for areas, you know, where there's momentum to get to get into those areas. Other people tend to do it, I think, the way you're sort of doing it in your ETF, whereas bonds end up being like a risk-off type thing. You know, you're looking at some other asset class and then when when the momentum breaks down in those asset classes, you end up in bonds. Like how well do you think technical analysis works on bonds?
2: Well, I you know, I would say technical analysis works best. It's really all in the sort of end user, right? But it works best for commodities and FX, right? Because those i would say are probably the purest in terms of supply and demand and they're also often the most liquid markets right so you have high liquidity so the charts are really kind of clean they they really mind support and resistance levels in part because the traders are using technical analysis and you have just more of a clean sort of supply and demand relationship that you know it's kind of economically related right but it's um you know there, there's less headline risk versus an individual stock, as an example. I would put, um, you know, treasury bonds somewhere kind of in the middle because there, there's a bit more, obviously, of a, a macro dynamic that comes into play there. And because of that, you know, you obviously have to look at price and yield, and you have to have it within a broader sort of economic context, uh, a sense of what the macro trends are, not just the technical trends. So I, I'd say just with treasuries as one, There's just a little bit more to it, Um, so it doesn't mean that technicals don't work, but are certainly, um, you know, they're, they're enhanced by understanding the macro trends. And for individual stocks, you know, we we always have key levels that we can watch where risk increases or decreases in our opinion, and so we always know where something is going to change. So that that's kind of the beauty of technical analysis: is it it is somewhat unbiased. It's like, okay, well, we have this stock or this position. And below this certain level, well, risk increases that the downside momentum is strong enough that we wanna be out of that position. Um, and it, you can have those levels that are derived from support and resistance and therein have like a little bit less of a bias. It's like if, some, if a level is taken out, you can't really argue with it. And that crosses all asset classes, right? So, so some of the very basic concepts like support and resistance, From technical analysis certainly apply to fixed income, Uh, but there's just a little bit more to it.
1: You mentioned on the equity side. You mentioned you've got an advisor who's doing some individual stock stuff. You mentioned then you've also got the stuff you're doing with your own strategies. Do you do anything else there? Like, do you have like buy and hold S and P 500? Do you like factors like value or anything like that? I mean, that seems kind of the opposite of what you do. But uh, do you have anything else you do there?
2: No, I mean, you know, value is like completely fair game. I, you know, when value's outperforming, um, it does tend to trickle in the into the sectors right like think about a value heavy sector like financials perhaps right so so the value and growth tilts are are always coming by the nature of my sector investing so i'm kind of trusting that i have not been big into other factors like you know, dividend paying companies or anything of that nature uh but certainly there are environments in which you should be a little bit more exposed to things that are interest rate sensitive and and otherwise um, so in my own investing, the way I see it is that I have this core sort of long term portfolio, and then at times I'll supplement it with something that I feel high conviction in or multiple things. and usually uh, it's when I feel like the market is quite strong and has a concentration or or leadership is concentrated in technology, which by the nature of of my primary exposure in the etf if technology is like the winning sector. I want to supplement that ETF exposure with technology stocks, right? Because that's where I'm going to get, um, I'm able to generate more alpha that way. Um, and I, I believe that they are, you know, the, the breakouts that we see in technology, they they do tend to generate momentum. It's sort of like the darling of the markets, right? I mean, I, I if I had to Measure how many questions I get about anything that's not a technology stock, I would say maybe it's like, you know, 30%, right? I'd say it really is primarily technology, maybe secondarily consumer discretionary and, uh, you know, healthcare, maybe a distant third in terms of what people are focused on. So technology is the darling because with these technology stocks, you often get, you know, long term uh, trends of innovation, right? That people are trying to leverage. And then uh, for me, from a technical perspective, you're getting uh, often a high beta type of position or a source of outside leadership, like a semiconductor stock. If you look at semiconductors over history, they do tend to outperform in strong tapes, right? So I kind of believe in supplementing a core kind of conservative portfolio, you know, whether it's 60, 40 or or just S&P 500 with those technology positions when we have a bull market environment of course, there's always the the question, is this a bull market environment, right? That that's, um, that's the hard part, right? Is to know, uh, you know, you have to identify the prevailing top-down influences and then make those uh, informed decisions.
1: How do you feel about international exposure? Do you invest internationally at all? I mean, that, that's been a big debate, like in our world, because in theory, international exposure should be great. But in the past 30 years, it's been kind of a catastrophe. Um, you know, the U.S. has just been killing everything else. Like, How do you think about that? Do you use technicals there? Do you invest internationally at all?
2: We we totally use technicals there. I'm not really highly invested typically in an an international, Uh, but my advisor certainly has some exposure there. And um, like you said, Jack, I mean the long term relative trend is pretty bad, and that goes for developed global versus U S. and then also emerging markets versus U S. But there are certainly times at which the environment, you know, whether it's based on the dollar or something different. is quite conducive to relative performance for a shorter period from international stocks. And the way I will express a view typically with that in mind would be on the country level via an ETF, because that's what I'm comfortable with. I I can't um, say I have any edge in in evaluating the individual stocks there. I can certainly have an opinion, of course, Uh, but in terms of stock selection, I think that's better left to the folks that are focused in those international markets. Uh, so instead, I, I I make kind of country bets, if you will. Um, you know, Japan breaking out from a six month consolidation, you can express that via ETFs quite easily. Uh, we we launched a report called the ETF Navigator, and uh, we did that because we had you know I'd say most of our questions, if they weren't about a technology stock, were probably about an ETF. So we we feature like sixty ETFs in that report, and and those ETFs to me are like a great source of of expressing a view um, that is either factor-based or country-based or, uh, you know, sort of a a sector or group theme like thematic ETFs. You can invest in cloud computing companies or, you know, lithium battery companies via ETFs. And I I think that's, in a way, the way to go. You get that sort of inherent diversification. Um, So we track all of these ETFs, which are, are usually pretty liquid and popular. And we'll evaluate them not just as a as sort of an absolute um, chart, right? We'll look at that, obviously want to see the trends there, but we'll compare them against each other using um, like rotational works so in the same way that we evaluate sector rotation. We're going to take all the thematic ETS and, and throw them up against the spiders and just see which ones have the relative momentum too that are poised to outperform. So, so that's how I would say we we would approach it. You know, international would fall into the that kind of um, supplemental positioning.
1: Yeah, for those of us who have invested internationally in the past decade, we probably wish we had called you up and used some technicals <laughs> uh-huh, because it <laughs> oh, would it would yeah, certainly I, have improved I, the outcomes relative to the buy and hold.
2: I do appreciate the rationale behind identifying these opportunities overseas, like in in China, which of course has been really out of favor. And um, You know, I understand why people are interested. Right. And 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 I think it's all about position sizing. Right. Where, um, uh, you know, in the same way that I, I like the idea of having, you know, five percent exposure to cryptocurrencies, I think you should have some small percentage of exposure to international markets. And then if you can do it in a systematic fashion, even better. And if you can do it in a dynamic fashion, even better, because that way. You're taking some of the emotions out of it, just keeping the trends on your side. Um, and then also not just, you know, being hopeful that China will finally, finally turn, but rather let the charts kind of guide you and say, well, you know, Brazil is acting much better and um, that type of thing. So let let the charts guide you as to what country is working right then and there. Um, and then obviously, if you have an opinion from more of a, an economic perspective, then just use that as another filter.
1: Just one more for me before I hand it back to Justin. We've talked about stocks. We've talked about bonds, commodities. Is there anything else like in the liquid portion of your portfolio that you do or is that pretty much cover it?
2: No, I mean, money markets, you know, um, T-bills and, you know, things. And and this is such a topic last year, right? <laughs> and the money market funds were paying 5%. Um, I, I don't think that will be the case for, for a long time. So um, we enjoyed it while it lasted, but it also means there's probably a lot of cash out there. so so I was uh, you know sort of uh, uh, I guess involved right in these money market funds too. but it, but that's about where it ends for me. I'm not saying that that's the right way to do it. Um, but it's it's just more what I've had capacity for, right so I'll, I'll always like park it right in a, a money market fund or a T bill type of ETF as a way to just get some safety when either as a placeholder, right, where I'm looking for an entry in something that's a little bit more exciting, perhaps. Um, and then I'll just have it as a placeholder, or because I think there's some risk, right, to the equity market and it's just a safer place to hide.
0: Going back to the point you made earlier about the interest um, from investors and technology companies, there was this chart on Twitter this morning that was basically like the mo it was from the bank of america merrill lynch fund survey and it was tracking going back to like 2014 the most crowded trade and like and it you know there's all these different lines and there's these little labels that are labeling like what the most crowded trade was well all the way through that time you know there's sprinkles of large cap growth technology stocks nasdaq and yet the most crowded trade was probably one of the most profitable ones um and I, th- I think the technicals would have kept you in there for the most part whereas you know a lot of people at different points there were saying it was the most crowded trade and probably all the all the money's been made.
2: Yeah, and that's like you know it comes down to reconciling I guess valuations and and sentiment. Um you know as a technician I'm I'm not like a strict behavioral finance person but I I do believe that market sentiment is is pretty much the most important influence. Now, market sentiment comes from a lot of different places, right? So it's almost like the end result of all of that other information that's out there too. Um, but, but every sort of bit of information gets narrowed down into a buy or sell decision. And if people are buying something and it's trending higher and it has the support of those uh, momentum gauges, well, of course, you want to just stay on the right side of that, um, so and and there are times at which I would say it becomes against your better judgment because it does feel crowded or it does feel like it's overextended. and um, we will kind of take our emotions out of that type of situation and say, okay, well here's here's what's going to you know change that trend for us. So here's where we're going to be out of it. And it can be something as simple as like a twenty day movie average. watch a twenty day moving average, and if it's trending higher. Great. Keep that on your side and hold that position, even if it's a little bit extended in your view. As soon as that starts to roll over, maybe reduce partial. Um, And maybe if it it takes out the 50-day moving average, you, you reduce the full position. And like in an area like the home building stocks, I think that's a great way to trade them because... You know, they, they were pretty unstoppable and they were unstoppable at a time when it didn't seem to make a lot of sense from a macro or fundamental perspective necessarily. Uh, but because they were working and they had these steep uptrends, that kind of discipline um, would have been really helpful in that sort of environment. And then, you know, by by watching the momentum or the trend, you can avoid those corrective phases, some of those prolonged corrective phases. Um, And then you just had to make sure that you're in your, these would be more from like a trading perspective, uh, but with a long-term trend, you could narrow or you could actually sort of zoom out from something like that's that trend sensitive, like a 20-day, and just use something that's longer term, right? And say, okay, well, I'm willing to watch this go against me, you know, by 10% or something like that. Have your mental threshold percentage-wise. Uh, but, but know that the primary trend is still supported by these indicators.
0: You had mentioned the five percent of the portfolio potentially in crypto assets. Is that something you actually do and invest in? Um and it seems it I, would seem to me like um that 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 technical that you know momentum would be very strong um on crypto
2: i I did have um you know a crypto position uh, when it was working, and then, I like so many others, I, I got a little spooked by the bear market cycle. Um, so, so dynamically, I, I'm I'm not as exposed to crypto as I was or or as I should be. Really, uh, we do cover the cryptocurrency markets on a weekly basis, so I'm really very close to it. Um, out of sort of, I don't know if you call it um, laziness or just not having dedicated sort of my time or money to it. I, I don't have a position right now, but I believe in a position. You know, we are, we are bullish. And have been bullish intermediate term for some time on um, the likes of Bitcoin and the Ether. So, so I believe in having a small position, not even just because of the trend, right, but because of the diversification that an asset class that well sometimes is tied to equities, but other times it really isn't. I like that the market's giving us some more choices, and, you know, and and even when gold isn't doing great, I like the idea of having some gold exposure. Um, so I like the idea of being diversified, you know, among asset classes, but to let the the percentage weightings be somewhat dynamic based on their trends. Um, so right now, I, I feel like cryptos have really turned the corner, and I am interested in building exposure. And I, I certainly welcome the news of the um, spot ETF. I just think that's going to make it much more investable.
0: Yeah, find it interesting that as soon as that got approved, it's like Bitcoin ran up. Well, they all did the run-up into it and then since the announcement they're down. so it's like what is going on it but it's kind found of, kind of to work.
2: classic right sell the news but what was interesting it, with that pullback is that ether just shrugged it off so ether mm-hmm. just kept the, you know all of a sudden the ratio between bitcoin to ether just reversed in favor of ether very very abruptly and so it made you think that well mm-hmm. uh, people really had run up bitcoin ahead of that n- news right and and in a way, Ether sort of suffered under that, even though it was going higher, was, it was lagging uh, for actually quite a long time. So maybe we'll see the relative performance shift a little bit.
0: How do you think about the value of your business and your overall, I guess, net worth? Is that something you think about? Or is it, is it just kind of you're there, you're day to day trying to grow the business and you really don't assign a value to it because who kind of knows what the value? I mean, you cr- probably could do like a discounted cash flow valuation on it. And figure it out if you really want to. But do you do you think about that at all? And do you think you do anything differently because you are exposed to maybe a little bit more market specific risk or variability in the profitability given what's going on <laughs> in the market?
2: You're making you're <laughs> me <laughs> laugh, um, because I mean, I, I um, you say DCF, you know, models. I, that's obviously not what I do. <laughs> so. so when I think about my business, I am more of the latter, meaning I'm just I'm there like, you know, fighting the good fight and and trying to grow the business every day, but yeah. really um what I enjoy about it is is the markets, right? So so I spend as much time as I do on the business as as on the research and and the consulting. So um I really am am in it for that and and I can't say that I have um, you know, a, a specific valuation in my mind. Excuse me as it pertains to my overall sort of um, investments and things like that. Um, but what I will say is, is I just like trends, right? Um, so as a technician, it, it's most important to me that I feel like the trends are good, right? And then that gives me more confidence. So I almost think of the business as much as it, it's intangible in a way. Um, I don't have a, you know, a price chart of Fair Lead Strategies, um, but I do have in mind the the prevailing trends. And and we've certainly seen in our six years now, uh, you know, the right trend. So I would say we're at this point in a long-term uptrend in terms of our growth and our reach and um, you know, and our people. We have a, a really great team. So those are the things that I feel like um, you know, get me excited. And um there are, you know, those those market environments in which we're just going to, you know, sort of struggle alongside most of Wall Street, quite frankly. And so we consider those to be pullbacks, right? So so I think about a pullback and a long-term trend as being healthy. What we don't want to see, of course, is some kind of bearish reversal for fair lead. And, and so far, knock on wood, so good. Um, but, you know, a growth trend is what we want to see.
1: want
0: to ask you one more and then get some of your thoughts on the market environment, what you're seeing um, under the surface. But um, this one is about Kids and you're a mom, you have young children. Uh, Jack and I both have uh young children as well. And you know, we we just like to ask and get perspective from different people as to how they view, you know, leaving some money to their children or how they view that. Like, you know, we've talked to some very wealthy people, and some people have said, you know, they've actually think they've left too much money to, to their children, that's not good. Um, others have said, you know, they kind of want to set their kids up to get them started maybe after college, but then after that, they're on their own. So just I mean, how do you how do you sort of view that?
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's a good question because and it's something I should think more about, more of the, the kind of macro um, version of that versus the micro, which I think I'm more focused on. I'm I'm really more focused right now on, um, you know, making sure that the kids aren't too spoiled, which I think, it, you know, based on what I'm reading out there, you know, we, we've almost got a problem right now <laughs> and we're. Where young uh, children, I mean, the ages, I just read something on Insider about 10-year-olds in Sephora going in and dropping a bunch of money that, you know, the, the workers at Sephora are saying, I, I don't even have that in my bank account. You know, so, so there is um, a little bit of, I think, a trend towards young people um, almost like, a, you know, having access to too much money, going to Starbucks, going to Sephora spending a lot of money and not having that sort of um personal finance knowledge yet so i've been more focused there i, I would mm. say which is more the micro version of, of that question to make sure that my my kids are developing good habits in terms of their spending so that's been more my focus now but um but i i think it's just in the same way that that my parents taught me to save I mean it was more the traditional like try to sock away 10 percent of your income every year and compounding etc I'm trying to instill that value in them and at the same time uh, my sort of primary goal in uh, you know in making money is truly to support their education so uh, that to me is is I don't want to say it's why I work but it, it really is a primary driver of me working so hard. It's also kind of my personality. I'm just generally um, sort of multitasking at all times and what have you. But I really want to build my wealth wealth in a way to support them through their education. And it doesn't mean, um, you know, I leave them high and dry once their education is done. But but I do want them, of course, to be self-sufficient.
1: Yeah, it's funny on, on the Sephora thing. My like my daughter, I've been know nothing about Sephora. But the other day she was like making a cart like on her iPad at Sephora. Um and she's like, Oh, it's three hundred dollars. And I was like, Wow, I didn't I had no idea you could spend that much money at Sephora. No, <laughs> I mean, obviously she didn't get any of the stuff she was trying to get, but I, I had no idea. She's nine years old, but like girls these days, I guess you know, Sephora is kind and of a big think, thing. Yeah.
2: The, these girls are influenced by the influencers, right? And right. They right. just have access to more information than we did. And there's good to that. And obviously there's a flip side to it as well. But, um, you know, the joy that they have just walking through CVS, it's like the, the consumerism. <laughs> it's really it's really prevalent. Whereas, um, you know, my son, he's, he's a little bit less interested in that, so it's just a matter of trying to make sure that that they're um, aware, right? Because what the last thing I want to see from my kids would be somebody, you know, going up to a counter and not having an idea of what something costs, right? And and that happened to one of my, my daughter's friends, where she she actually bought something and she never looked at how much it cost. It landed on her her parents' um, credit card, and that's where the shock came right mm-hmm. it was and, and it was it really she didn't have any negative intentions of course right but just didn't think to look so um, that's something we need to teach them
0: what are you let's get into the market a little bit um as we wrap up here so what's you know give us a rundown of what's going on currently in the market what you're seeing in the short and midterm and maybe where the opportunities are as we sort of start 2024 here
2: Yeah, I mean, I I am bullish, and I am bullish primarily because of the action that we saw in Q4. I was bullish on the S&P 500 last year, probably as of the breakout that occurred in early May. But this is a bigger breakout that we have as of Q4. So it's not just sort of an extension of the cyclical uptrend, it's something that shows the breath has really improved. So as an example, the S&P 500 broke out above 4,600, which was a strong resistance level on the chart. And then also we saw a little bit later, the advanced decline line, which is a measure of market breadth or participation, reach a new high. So these mutual breakouts in price and in breadth or participation, to me, are, are what dictate a bullish bias for probably most of this year based on the implications of the breakouts that we've seen. So those breakouts occurred not only in the major indices in the U.S., but also in sort of the bottom-up work that we do, the sectors. You can see a lot of breakouts on the sector level. You can see, and and by the way, that wasn't really the case even back in uh, sort of middle of last year. We had sort of more narrow leadership as, as has been well publicized. And then globally, I mean, we have big breakouts in a lot of overseas markets, and I think that global breath is something else that really differentiates Q4 from uh, the earlier stages of the bullish reversal post 2022. So, so I am bullish for the breakouts, for the improved breath that seems meaningful, uh, for the fact that it is global in nature, and the implications of all of that for our long-term indicators. So looking at those same monthly bar charts that are guiding our ETF we have really very compelling setups in our indicators on that time frame so as much as we've seen a pullback here at the start of 2024 and I know that has people a little bit uh, on edge because of um, you know the the January barometer from the stock traders almanac and, and other seasonal implications but I, I think we have to Contextualize the pullback within the very strong up move that preceded it. It's very rare to see nine weeks of upside from the S and P five hundred consistently. So to see a couple of weeks uh, that are have a lower bias, I actually think is is quite healthy. So now we're in this mode that we expect a little bit more consolidation near term. But rather than telling people to get hedged, we're more in the mode of hey, just you know stick with your exposure that's exhibiting positive intermediate term momentum and it hasn't seen deterioration on the weekly charts. And But, you know, wait to add, wait to add exposure until we have a little bit more of a convincing uh, evidence from, we use primarily the stochastic oscillator for timing re-entries and we don't quite have that yet. So it could happen next week. It can happen in three weeks, but it, we do think it will happen relatively soon.
1: As we uh, get towards the end of these, we like to ask a question that gets at the idea that not everything we invest in, you know, has a financial purpose. And I always give the example, like I have, I have a sailboat and, and I like I have a racing sailboat and I enjoy like going out with my friends and, you know, going on these Wednesday night races and having a beer. And, you know, if you look at that, it purely is an investment. It's a terrible investment. It requires upkeep, you know, constantly have to spend money on it. But I'm wondering if there's anything like that in your life. Is there anything you like to spend money on that maybe is not a great financial investment, but you get a lot of benefit from it in your life?
2: It's funny, Jack. I didn't know that. We'll have to talk more offline about, about sailboat racing. It's something that I've done sort of for, for 20 years plus, and I love it. Um, oh, cool. And I see, but I see how these so called syndicates, um, you know, they can drop so much money on just one race, right? So I can see how. You know, especially if they're serious and getting new sales and what have you. So, so boats are, are notorious money pits, and I would say it especially racing boats. You'll you'll notice that fairlead. If if you look at our you know website and our sort of branding, there's a little bit of a nautical element to it. Fairlead is a little part on a boat. It's this little uh, sort of guideline um, to make sure that the, the lines don't get tangled. So so fairlead is a nautical reference. And so is tech, as you can imagine, right? So, anyway, so so we'll have to talk about that. But um, you know, I would say for me personally, it's it's more travel because I really love to travel, and I, I've always loved it. Um, you know, and and I kind of drag my whole family uh, to all these places, and and you know, sometimes we have like places that are total hits with everyone, and and other times not as much. Um, But travel, of course, has gotten so expensive, um, you know, really since post-COVID, I would say. So we've, um, you know, at times probably outlaid more than I personally should, right, on a trip that, you know, is two nights or three nights, right? So so I think that's probably my hotspot, if you will, in terms of things that might be a bit of a drain and and probably um, at times more than I, I can really justify. But I, I also value that just in the same way that you value having this experience every Wednesday. You know, I really value the excitement of, of, of planning the trip, the you know sort of getting everybody off of their devices for a few days and focusing on something new and different, and seeing that there's a big world out there. So it's it's an enriching experience. I think that is sort of worth it to me if I had to put it that way.
0: So we like to ask all of our guests sort of a standard closing question, which is if you could impart one lesson, to the average investor that you've learned from building your own portfolio, what would that be?
2: Oh, goodness, yeah. I mean, I, I would say certainly the long-term focus. Um, to go back to that, I don't want to belabor that point, though. Um, but I, I would say that not only the long-term focus, but just the systematic approach. And um, I think the the biggest problem probably in building a portfolio is not having defined risk metrics right so we always want to make sure that we know what we're risking right we, we want to obviously have unlimited upside um, but obviously if you're making an investment and um, you know you believe in that but you just really need to know what you're willing to risk on that position individually and then within you know the broader context of your portfolio so so risk management which can be achieved through stop losses it can be achieved through using indicators to discern a, a meaningful shift, or it can be achieved through asset allocation. So there's a lot of ways to do that and maybe some combination of those ways is best. Uh, but that that's the lesson learned. And I can't say it comes from like a specific position that went wrong for me, um, but it's something that, you know, we've all been through that where we just are watching something and, and we either it, it gets off our radar for a little bit and we just say, I can't believe I let that go against me for that long. Um, so I think it's, it's to avoid that type of position. Um, and it is, you know, it, it takes a little bit of work and that's, um, you know, it means that we have to dedicate some time to it.
0: Katie, this has been great. Thank you very much for coming on, um, talking about this, you know, different than what you talk about most of the time, but it's been excellent. I think our audience is going to learn, uh, a lot from this. So we really appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Of course, Justin. Thank you both. Nice to see you.
0: This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. Justin
1: Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Lydia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Lydia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Lydia Capital.